Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Tonight, what we really want to talk about is marriage. Um, we have been married almost three years, so really not that long. Um, but the truth is, over the last probably two years, um, we've seen so much fruit and growth um, in our marriage, and it's all by the grace of God. But we just believe he wants to do it again. Um, and it's not just us, it's everyone here. And we just think there is so much he has in store for you guys tonight. And we just want to kind of offer our testimony, if you will. Um, but specifically, what we really want to talk about is how this idea of abiding in Jesus and the gospel relate to marriage. Um, it's kind of what we think is, is the foundation of any marriage. It's indispensable. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's what we've been kind of living this last year. Um, so that's what, we wanna, that's what we want to talk about. And the truth is this teaching could really apply to any aspect of life um, or any relationship for that being. So if you're not married here, don't worry. There, there's plenty here for you. Um, but kind of thinking about this teaching, I was thinking, you know, why, why talk about marriage? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the reason? And this won't come as a shock to you. But the truth is the world is quite bad at relationships. Um, it's, not, it's not hard to look and see um, what's going on out there. So it's important that we talk about it, you know, in the house and, and, and get our minds around what a godly marriage should look like. And when I was thinking about this, I was just thinking, you know, what, what does it look like in the world? What do relationships look like? And I realized it's gotten so bad that there are entire sectors of our economy dedicated to bad relationships. And one of those, on a lighter note, is entertainment. Um, and I was thinking about the show Jerry Springer. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, it's probably a good thing. Um, but it's basically this guy, Jerry Springer, just like on stage mediating people's dysfunctional relationships for entertainment. And I'm sure it's somewhat dramatized, but he found enough relationships that his net worth is now worth $60 million. So he, uh, he had a lot of product, if you know what I mean. So uh, for better or for worse, that's, he's doing really well. But kind of on the flip side of that, there's also like a more defined and or sorry refined way to you know make money off of bad relationships and I was thinking about like a divorce lawyer like that's a good job who they're a professional whose entire livelihood is helping people like break up relationships and it's sad um, but it's so normal in culture it's so expected and unfortunately we still see this in the church um, it's not something that we're immune to so I think it's important to talk about it but I will say that the world's narrative should not inform our narrative for what marriages need to look like. So that's what we're talking about tonight. So to kind of exemplify what we're talking about, we're going to share a few stories throughout our teaching tonight um, to show how, when you look to Jesus, it can actually transform your day-to-day -day life. So we're going to start with one, though, that's a great example of how we did not respond to each other in love to kind of give you an idea of like where we were and then where Jesus has brought us to now. So um, when we first got married, we got our first apartment. We were settling in, figuring out like how to live together. Um, and I like things really tidy. My family is here. They can testify to that. Um, I always have. And Austin likes cleanliness, but he also doesn't mind like a pile here and there. We live with his parents. They can testify to that. Uh, <laughs> but 
there was this space in between his side of the bed and the wall that eventually just started to like grow into a large pile. There were socks, charging cords, the set of speakers he just had to keep, even though we got really nice ones for our wedding, and just things. And every time I went into the room, I, I saw it. I looked at it every time. It honestly stressed me out, and I couldn't not look at it. Like I would try to make the bed and just couldn't even like get to the sheets because there was so much stuff. So he decided to call it the Event Horizon. And I will, I will interject for, you to the, for those of you who are not like science space nerds, what the Event Horizon is, picture this, a black hole, okay? And on the right on the edge where it turns from, you know, where it's like swirly and goes black, that's called the Event Horizon. And, it's, and I don't know why they call it that, but gravity's so strong there that it pulls light in. And that's important because you can't see past it. So if I figured if I'd call the edge of my bed the event horizon, if she couldn't see past it, she wouldn't have to think about it. And it didn't work. So pro tip, humor doesn't get you out of your responsibilities. I've tried it many times and it never works. Um, but the truth, honestly, was just I was just being selfish. Um, I was being completely self-centered, thinking about myself, not wanting to make an environment that was healthy for her, right? And I would just, I didn't, I didn't want to pitch in. Um, so that, that was really... Um, on me, and the humor didn't fix that, so. It helped a little bit, but not long-term. <laughs> Lightened it a little bit. So I have a distinct memory during quarantine. You know, everyone got their stimulus check. What I wanted was a vacuum. So we splurged and got like a $40 vacuum, <laughs> but it worked, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> so I was having fun, you know, vacuuming our room, and just, I approached the pile, and I couldn't get past it. And the reasonable response, you know, would maybe be to just turn around or like tidy it. I just, like, I lost it. I could not handle it anymore. I cried, like, these angry tears and just, like, couldn't calm down. I had to take some time in our room to just, like, chill. Uh, but the reality was is that this wasn't just a mess, that I had allowed myself to believe for so long that Austin was doing this on purpose. He was leaving this mess on purpose, that a mess was no longer just a mess. It became a personal offense, and that's why it led me to respond in anger rather than like you know casually being able to move past it. Um, and so at that time, I had no idea that my emotional response could actually change. I didn't get yet that Jesus had actually paid for that response, that he actually had a different narrative for me to believe. I just thought, like, oh, anger, it's just going to happen. It's just part of who I am. Bummer for Austin. Um, but instead, over like the last year or so, Jesus has really shown us a different way to think about our interactions that has made it possible for us to respond to each other in love. Um, and we also wanted to just point out that oftentimes we hear in the church this idea that, oh, yeah, marriage, it's just hard. But if you look at scripture, that's not in there at all. There, nothing in the Bible says that God's foundation for family is meant to be full of sin and hurt. As we heard before, that is the case for many, but it's not what Jesus wants for us. And so we want to share today that, yes, it does take effort and intention, but it should be a life-giving relationship. That Jesus uses marriage to exemplify our relationship to him, so our marriages with each other should look like that as well. Yeah, so good. Uh, so kind of broadly speaking, what should our marriages look like then? Um, and I think kind of big picture, they need to be a light. They need to be the salt of the earth. Like they need to be these things that Jesus said that we would be as his disciples. They need to show what's possible um, when we are in Jesus. John 13, 35 says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
So how we love in marriage is actually a testimony to the world that we follow Jesus. Our love should be so radical in how we treat each other that people say something's just different about them. And what they're seeing is Jesus, and that just points them to who he is and his reality that he's in us, and it's just a testimony to them. Um, transformed marriages should be the expectation. I was watching a video once uh, by this guy, his name's John Lennox. He's a professor of mathematics at Oxford, but also like a Christian apologist, so just kind of like a heady thinker guy. Um, and someone asked him, you know, why do you believe in Christianity? Like, you're a scientific guy. Like, what got you? And he said that you can actually test Christianity as a scientific guy. Like, he wants to test things. And the example he gave, and he said he's seen this over and over again, is, you know, he met someone who was addicted to drugs, and their life was just in shambles. And then he ran into them six months later, and they're a new person. They're full of joy. Their life's together. They're not addicted anymore. And you're like, what happened? And the person's like, I met Jesus. Like, I, I met him, and, and now I'm a, I'm a transformed person. And for him, he said, that for me was proof that Christianity works. Like, it's not just this set of beliefs. Like, there's an actual life transformation that happens when you follow him. And for him, he was like, well, this must be true because I'm seeing it everywhere when I meet these people. And our marriages need to be witnesses like that. Like, the transformed marriage should be the expectation. Um, it's something that the world wants. Truly, they want to see this. They, they might not say it, but deep down, everyone wants these wholesome, life-giving relationships. And our marriage are a testimony that we can give people of what's available to them. So, um, to start, as a model for how this is possible, we're going to be reading through John 15. So, you guys can go ahead and open up to John 15 with me. And um, as we do that, our first example with the Event Horizon was a great example of how we responded in really anger and selfishness. But John 15 shows us that that's not the only option, that we can actually respond in love. So we're going to be reading through that. And then I also wanted to point out that if you are here and you're not married, this is for you. This is all stuff that I wish I would have known and really been able to take to heart prior to meeting Austin. I think that having the confidence in actually believing that I'm loved by Jesus and then able to go out and love others would have enabled me to really enjoy my single years even more. And then obviously would have benefited us when we started dating and getting married. So if you're not married, please tune in because this is for all of us. So we're going to start um, in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So just a couple things I want to point out there. Um, one is that I used to read these verses and come away pretty discouraged. Like I'd hear this idea of remain and be like, okay, I, how do you do that? Um, and I felt like the responsibility of remaining was on me. So there was this pressure that I would come away feeling, and it just honestly wasn't encouraging. Um, and now I see that remaining is just being with the one that we love. Other translations use the word abide, so abide and remain is just staying with Jesus, looking at him, being with him. And so that was a huge mindset shift for me in recognizing that, oh, this isn't work. This is just being with Jesus. And then I also want to point out that in verse 3, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So right here, he's giving us, oops, am I gone? Hello. Oh, good job. 
thanks. <laughs> He's giving us an identity statement that we are clean. In Greek, it's also um, can be translated as upright, guiltless, innocent. So those are words that Jesus is speaking over us. So we don't abide to get clean. We're able to abide because he's already made us clean. And that's huge. That I needed to know that. So maybe that's for you too. Um, so we're going to pick up now on verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So if you're a disciple, your desire is to bear fruit. We want these things in our lives. We think about Galatians, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. These are all good things. But in order for those things to flow through our lives, we just stay connected to Jesus. That is the, the job, so to speak, is just to keep our eyes on him. It's not to go out and just become a really peaceful person. It's instead to look to Jesus and let his fruit flow through you. Uh, when he talks about like the, vi or the branches, when they're just on the ground, you know, they're dead. It makes me think about like the ice storm that we had last winter and how all these branches have been, I mean, it's taken months. I think they're just now finishing up cleaning it all up because they're not good for anything anymore. If they've fallen off the tree, they can't produce anything. So thinking about a branch has to stay connected to the vine and then that's it. It can just continue to bear fruit. And in verse one, Jesus tells us that he's the vine. So he's the one that we're looking at in order to have his fruit come through us. So abiding is what leads to fruit, not the other way around. And then let's start on verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So again, this is another section that I used to read and come away feeling like, oh, okay, obey my commands, okay, I'll just do it. And it was really kind of this discouraging way of reading the Bible. Um, but if you look at the context, you see that Jesus is saying that he already obeyed his Father's commands. He's the one who makes it possible for us to do the same. He's the one who's actually doing the heavy lifting. He's our life source. So when we stay connected to him, it makes it possible for us to obey his commands. And then if you look at the end, too, he says that your joy may be complete. That's the purpose of following the, the commands. So they're not like drudgery. They're commands that lead to life. They actually lead to joy. And then in verse 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So that's the command is to love. Of course, that would lead to joy. So here in John 15, we see that it's through abiding, keeping our eyes on Jesus, that we're able to bear fruit. In the garden, Adam and Eve had a choice where they looked. They got to decide what they looked at, and it was when their eyes shifted to themselves that sin entered the world. And Jesus came to give us something new to look at so that we can actually choose, oh, I'm going to look back at him, and then the fruit can flow from me. And when we take our eyes off of him and we put them on ourselves, all we have to do is just put them back on him, and that's where the fruit can keep flowing out of us. So I do want to share another um, testimony about a year ago, I decided to put this into practice and see, like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word. Let's see if it works. Um, prior to that point, one of the things that I had struggled with in our marriage was just feeling, like, loved and feeling the sense of affection. And it was just this thing that was always bothering me. And it was something that Austin could never do. Like, he couldn't fulfill that expectation because he's not my life source. I was looking at the wrong place. And so it was this constant like frustration because I was expecting him to do something 
he was never meant to be able to do it. It's only through Jesus that I can actually be satisfied and fulfilled. And so I decided to just try looking to Jesus each day and see what would happen. And ultimately, the issue there was insecurity. So this was what I really needed Jesus to be working on in my heart. Um, And if you ever find yourself looking to someone else to fulfill your needs for affection or for feeling loved, try it. Like, stop and see if you look to Jesus instead, just what happens. So in dealing with insecurity in my heart, I decided that each day for a couple weeks, I was just going to pray God's will over my mind, will, and emotions. We often hear the Bible talk about our heart or our soul, and that's what it's referring to. And so when we realize that our mind, will, and emotions are not set in stone, they don't have to define how we respond to people and situations, then we can actually submit them to Jesus, let him define how we feel and how we're thinking, and that's where, like, really the transformation happens. And so each day I would start with just that prayer, like, okay, Jesus, I submit to you, my mind, will, and emotions. And over the course of like probably a month, I just felt my heart start to change where I felt this affection towards Austin that I hadn't had before and just this ability to love him without needing something from him in return. So I was able to love out of overflow rather than this like sense of deficit And then when he would respond to me in love or do something that was like extra kind or affectionate, it was just a gift and something I could enjoy rather than something that I would die without having. So all of that was made possible by looking to Jesus and actually believing he can transform the way that I feel. So good. We could be done there. So if you're hoping, so I'm sorry, but we're still going. Uh, So what Brianna just did an amazing job of doing was taking John 15 and kind of giving this like 30,000 foot view of what like becoming like Jesus is like when we abide and how that kind of impacts the marriage. But what we want to do now is kind of zero in, if you will, and almost like look behind the curtain and kind of see like what's actually going on when we abide. Like how is that changing us? When I look to Jesus, like what's actually happening? And I would say like foundationally speaking, when we abide... um, What we're really doing is connecting ourselves to Jesus, but just as importantly, we are connecting ourselves to the power of the gospel. And it's this, this power that's available to us that actually transforms our life. Um, So we're going to unpack that. So we're going to kind of go into like, what is the gospel? Because I think it's it's good to have common language, right? So what is the gospel? Um, Many will think, you know, of course it's this truth about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's 100% true. That is what the gospel is. It's this good news about this. But we see this in Romans 1.16. The Bible says this, that for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So what do we see there? We see that it is this revelation of Jesus, but when we believe this revelation, there is this power that comes that brings salvation, right? So when I say gospel, Think revelation of all the things Jesus did, who he was, but also when we believe in it, there's this power that's made available that brings about salvation, okay? So that's kind of the common language I want to use for the gospel. But with that, how do you kind of connect that to everyday life? Because I think it's easy to be like, oh yeah, the gospel, but what what does that do for me? And I think what's key here is understanding that our salvation is kind of in three parts. And that might be new language or not, but commonly used terms for this are justification, when we're saved sanctification, what we're in now, kind of becoming more like Jesus, and then glorification when we go to heaven. Those are kind of the three things that salvation kind of encompasses. And we see this in Philippians 2.12. You probably have heard this, continue to work out your salvation. 
it's a, it's a present thing. Like we're actively engaged in working out this aspect of our salvation, which is our sanctification. So it's something we're doing now. And I think it's really easy to attach the gospel to our justification when we were saved or our glorification when we go to heaven, but I don't think we often connect it to now, to today. We don't connect the gospel um, often. I know I didn't for most of my life. Um, but the truth is, the source for all three of those is the same thing. There's not like a different way that sanctification is right about. It's the same source. So I want to read this little excerpt from a commentary. It's kind of long, but I think it does a really, really good job of breaking this down. And I think it's going to really help clarify what I'm trying to say. So here we go. We have to remember that the scriptural expression salvation is used with considerable width and complexity of signification. It sometimes means the whole of the process from the beginning to the end by which we are delivered from sin in all its aspects and are set safe and stable at the right hand of God. It sometimes means one or other of three different parts of that process. Either deliverance from the guilt, punishment, and condemnation of sin when we're justified, or secondly, the gradual process of deliverance from its power in our own hearts, sanctification, or thirdly, the completion, the completion of that process, the final and perfect deliverance from sin and sorrow, from death in the body, from earth and all its weariness and troubles, which is achieved when we are landed on the other side of the river, which is glorification going to heaven. Salvation in one aspect is a thing past to the Christian. In another, it is a thing present. In a third, it is a thing future. But hear this, all three of these are one. All are elements of the one deliverance, the one mighty and perfect act which includes them all. These three all come equally from Christ himself. These three all depend equally on his work and his power. It's amazing. So what are the implications of this, though? If my sanctification is, has the same source as when I was saved and glorified, we don't often think like, well, I got saved, but I have to do these things to make sure that's true, or when I'm going to heaven, we all just trust his power to do that, right? But the implications for that are this, that there must not be 10 ways to be sanctified or work at our salvation then. There's one. There's only one way. And if you look in Christian culture at large, there's a lot of books and podcasts and things that will tell you this is how you become more like Jesus. Like, do these things, and the result will be you're going to be more like him. And that's all well and good, but if they don't get your eyes on Jesus and get you to the actual power source, they don't do anything for you. What they really are are just external acts trying to contain this internal reality, which is really a lot like the law was. Um, but the gospel actually came and transformed us from the inside. But we can't do it ourselves. There's a power source that we have to connect ourselves to, right? So how do we receive this power then? Well, remember back to Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So there's a key there. It's believing. It's faith. That is what connects us to get this power that we need because it's all the same source, right, to bring about our salvation today. Um, so... What I want to talk about is now, like, what is this power, right? I'm talking about this thing. It sounds like, okay, what, what, is, what is power? It's not a word we use very often. Um, I think we have to remember first that when we were saved, when we were brought into the kingdom, you and I are now one with Christ. Perfect unity, no separation. We have full access to him. There's no dividing wall anymore. That's key. Because if that's true, it means this, that we have the fullness of Christ in us. We see this in Colossians 2, 9 to 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, 
And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. The fullness of Christ is in you. But it, it gets better. Second Peter uh, 1, 3 to 4 says this. His divine power has given us everything we need for our godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So because of the gospel, through our oneness with Christ, we have full access to his fullness. We partake in this divine nature. So that means as Christians, we're not lacking. We are not victims to our circumstances and what the world does or doesn't do or says or doesn't say does not get to dictate my thoughts, my will, and my emotions. He does. Um, we partake in the divine nature. We're born of God. There is no way that there is this external thing that can control us if that reality is true, if that is true. And what I want to do is just kind of give like a summary slide of sanctification. I know that's just like a lot of theology and concepts. So I try to condense it to one really long, complex sentence. So um, it should it be up on longer. this. It, yeah, we, we shortened it. So I'm just going to read this. When we believe that Jesus has given us all we need to live a godly life through his work on the cross... We have access to his power, which enables us to live as he did through his fullness coming out of us. The focus is all on him. All he's asking is just believe that I did it. That's the only qualification. Um, it's so simple. And I know for a long time this sounded way too good to be true, but I think we've seen it in our lives. And it's, it's, it's just incredible when you just stop trying and just let him show up. Things change. Um, it's awesome. But I think this kind of raises a question, which maybe you've already thought of, and you've probably thought through it once in your life before, but the question is this, is the power of God through the gospel enough to overcome sin in my life, or does sin have power over me and I'm only saved when I die, like truly saved? Um, and I'm just going to say this, I, I, I'm not going to... I'm not some theologian who can give you, you know, the 55 scriptures that backs up one argument or the other, but based off what we've just heard... It's either we have received everything we have or need to live a godly life, or we haven't. Either we're participants in the divine nature or we're not. Either we have been brought to fullness or we haven't been brought to fullness. Either we're dead to sin or we're not dead to sin. We see in Romans 6.2, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And I think what I, the, the thing I want you to walk away with is just simply this, that we have a choice. We are not enslaved to our minds to just sin. Like, that's just not, I don't, I don't see that in the Bible. We're not victims to some sinful nature. I think the Bible is really clear that it died. Um, we have a choice. And I don't think that we've fully accepted this and what the gospel has for us. Um, kind of as the big C church, I think at Saints Hill, we actually do a really great job of talking about this, and it's really amazing. Um, but one of my favorite teachers, and if you know Brandon and I, You've heard us talk about Peter Lewis. He's basically wrote this teaching. Um, but he says that we, as the church, have only, only preached a partial gospel, so we've only received part of the power. We haven't fully believed what's available, so we haven't seen all the fruit that's out there. So sin is in the church because we haven't fully accepted that he's paid for it already. Um, and when Jesus told the disciples that his spirit would come on them, he promised them power. Um, and a church dominated by sin doesn't have power. 
Um, we need this power of the gospel. We need to see that in our lives and in our marriages to see them transformed. And if you want more on this whole idea of like saint and sinner and all that, I would really encourage you to go back to our vision series in the fall. Listen to Jake's teaching on our core value, we are the righteousness of Christ. He unpacks it so well. And if you want more on that, I just would say that's a great resource for you. Okay, so that was a lot of Bible theology, and I want to get practical because it is practical, I promise. This isn't just, you know, something to talk about in a theology class. So I want to give another story, and I think it's going to hopefully kind of exemplify what I'm trying to get at and how that, that framework for sanctification that I was talking about. So back um, in the Event Horizon days, early on in our marriage, um, when Brian and I would be home, she would often ask me to take out the garbage which is a totally fine and justified thing. It was like 100 feet away. It was not a big deal. But at some point, I decided that I would just get offended about it. Um, and I had no reason. Even if she was doing it to be mean, I still had no reason to be offended. But I was just uh, accusations in my mind, like she doesn't respect me, and she's just using me, and she won't do it herself. And just absolutely, if you know my wife, she's like a total like servant and does all the chores. So like I had no reason to feel this way. Um, but, you know, it... It, it was just something that I, I, just, I just kind of believed. And it's funny, I would be at home alone sometimes. I'd open up under the sink and the garbage would be full. And I would be like, oh, she left this here for me to take out. And I would like Tetris garbage on top to like passive aggressively not take it out. Or like all fall and I'd be annoyed and I'd pick it up and take it out anyways. So that was where I was at for a while. Totally just, yeah, not, not great. But one day when I was feeling this, when I opened the trash and it was full, I just heard this voice and it said, you know, I took your trash out when you didn't deserve it. And, you know, it was like, ooh. I have a kind of a dark sense of humor, so like, I feel like the Lord uses that sometimes. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that hurts, but it's good because I know it's you. <laughs> but I, mean, I was convicted, obviously, and I was like, yeah, I need to repent of that. But, you know, this was kind of early on in my journey of him taking me through this process of learning how to abide. And so what I, I did is I just applied that to the situation. And what's funny about what he did is he really just showed me an aspect of himself. He didn't, like, set up some rules, like, Every Tuesday at 5 o'clock, you're going to take the garbage out because you need to do that. No, he just showed me, hey, look what I did. Look how I responded. And it's like, oh, I see, I, see, I see that's how you were, and so I want that for myself. And so what I did is I just looked to Jesus and saw that he was humble, um, and he died, he died for me when I didn't deserve it, right? Like, he had every right to just walk away. But he said, you know what? No, I'm going to take the way of humility. I'm going to serve you. And so... I, I remembered that, and then I also remembered that because of what he did for me, him and I are one, and I have full access to his fullness, and I have all that I need to live a godly life. And by the power of the gospel, that's available to me. And so I was like, all right, well, because all this is true, the same humility you showed, you know, when you died for me, I have access to that now. So I'm going to put my faith in that, and that's true of me. And I'm telling you guys, the second I did that, the bitterness just left. Like, this power that I'm talking about, it truly just comes. Um, and I was, just, I was just filled with, like, love for my wife, like, out of nowhere. And I was just like, I wanted to serve her. And I, and I took the garbage out full of joy for the first time in months. Um, and I know that's... Yeah. And I know that's like a really simple, like, silly story. But the truth is, when we don't live this way, bitterness just builds up. And we just accuse and accuse and accuse, and it just puts this wall between people, and it's just not, not what he has for us. And I think we have, he has so much more for us. Um, yeah, and I, I want to give one more quick story from the Bible. When you see in, in John 8, many of you know this story, there's the woman that's caught in adultery. 
And she's brought before Jesus by the Pharisees, and they're like, hey, according to our law, I'm very much paraphrasing here, but, um, you know, we should stone her, right? And Jesus was like, oh, well, if any of you, you know, haven't sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then they all end up leaving because they're all like, they all realize, oh, well, I guess I, I can't because I, I, they, they realized how wrong they were in, in the sin that they had in their own life. But what's funny about that story is I just realized there actually was someone there who was fully justified to stone her, and it was Jesus. He didn't have sin, right? He could have been fully justified to, to carry out that sentence on her. And it's funny, the biggest offense there for her wasn't against the Pharisees, it was actually against Jesus. Like, he was God, like, she broke his law, if you will. I mean, he's part of the Father. Indirectly, she was breaking his law. And he didn't do that, though. He said, you know what, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And he forgave her and, and let her go. When he had every single right to, 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 to judge, to, to condemn, but he chose the way of love. And when we abide in him, we gain the same ability through his power to offer that same love and that same forgiveness to our spouses or to people that we meet. Um, when people sin against us or we start to accuse one another um, and when, when we feel justified to withhold our affection or just act in a way that isn't in love, all we really have to do is just look back to him and remember what's true and we can respond how he would respond. It's not about my ability to respond well. It's his ability to respond well. Um, and it's that kind of love that we need. Um, you know, he is the one who went to the cross and hung on that cross because of my sin and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the love that he wants to pour out on us. That's the forgiveness he wants to give to us. So in response to that, we can give that away to the people that we meet. And it's this kind of radical love that our marriages need to be transformed, and it's fully available through what he accomplished on the cross. So, so far we've shared a few different stories that kind of highlight thought patterns and things that we were dealing with, and the answer to all of those was looking to Jesus. You've heard us say that several times already. That's the point. Um, but we really want to give you some practical steps for how to look at Jesus. It's easy to say, like, oh, yeah, look at Jesus, and think, like, oh, yeah, sure, I know what to do, but then actually not know how to do that. And we both grew up in the church. We both love the Lord, but this concept, this, like, uh, exercise, if you will, of looking at Jesus has been relatively new in the last year or so, but it has brought so much freedom. And so we want to kind of give some examples of what that actually looks like. Um, so one of the biggest things that we've found is daily meditating on the cross and why Jesus did what he did is huge. So taking some time, even like setting a timer for a couple minutes and just thinking about Jesus, picturing him on the cross, asking him questions like, why did you do it? Why did you die for me? And then just sitting there and letting him show you and tell you. Um, it seems so simple, but it's not something that like I thought of doing on my own. Someone had to show me how to do that. So that's what we want to do today. Um, and then also thinking about who he is. So looking at his life, thinking about his life on earth, his ministry, think about where he is now, interceding for us. Think about when he returns. You know, go to Revelation. Read the description of him. He's insane. <laughs> but just thinking through, letting Jesus allow, like, use your imagination to make himself real to you. He's not just a character in a book, and he's not just some like spiritual being. He's human. So let himself be human to you. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me in the last 
handful of months, I, so I teach first grade, and back in April, we were going back to in-person teaching for the first time in a year, and I was feeling kind of nervous, and so in my quiet time was just looking at Jesus, asking him, which part of you do you want me to think about today? And he brought to mind the story of when the children come, and just had me think about his face, like what did he look like when those kids came? What did he talk about with them? Like, Did he crack jokes with them? Did he tell stories? Usually little kids don't like run up to a stranger and like sit on their lap. We typically train them not to do that. Um, but so what was it about Jesus that showed these kids that, oh, he's safe. I want to be with him. I want to hang out with him. And so just thinking through, you know, we can read the story and it's just a few quick lines, but asking Jesus, okay, what do you want me to imagine here? What was actually going on? And just letting him be real to you is huge. And then also receiving the truth about what he thinks about you. So asking him, what do you think about me? And just listening whenever I feel that insecurity that I was dealing with before creep back in. The answer is to stop and think about the cross, recognize that Jesus died for me, so my identity is accepted, I'm not rejected, and that has to kill all insecurity. So these are just practical things that you can do daily that just keep, actually Peter Lewis wrote a devotional called Keep the Blood Warm, and it's like a lamb on the front cover, and it's just an idea of like meditating on these scriptures that are about Jesus that keep his blood warm, like keep him alive to us, that the gospel is real and it's for today. So those are just some ways that we've started doing that in our day-to-day lives. And then out of that, over time, an intimate relationship with Jesus can be formed. That is what abiding looks like. And when you are regularly just spending time with him, that's where you can start to see that you don't have to be offended. You can choose to actually not be offended by people because you see that Jesus was absolutely offended but didn't respond as being offended. Um, Our hearts can become softened towards one another because our hearts are softened when we realize how Jesus looks at us and that changes how we look at each other. I've shared this with Austin that ever since really looking to Jesus, I feel like physically that my, my eyes like look at you differently. I don't know if that sounds really weird, but I just feel like this sense of love in my eyes when I look at him. Like we were at the gym this morning and I'm looking over for him and I see him. I'm just like, oh, there he is. Like just this sense of like love. And it's not anything that I can muster up. It's in the little things at the gym. Um, it's just honestly, Jesus's love flowing through me in a way that I never knew was possible. And he gets to directly benefit, which is pretty cool. Um, And then we no longer, like, need to receive love from others in order to love them back. Instead, we can receive love from Jesus daily, and that fills us up to go out and love regardless of what we receive in return. So Austin and I, oh, there was one more. This one's important. In submitting our mind, will, and emotions, there's that idea that we talked about earlier, we can actually see Jesus' thoughts and desires and feelings become our own. So that's huge, too. Um, So Austin and I are still very different people. Jesus didn't just take us, make us the same, take away all our differences, and call it good. Instead, we're still different, and yet he gave us ways to respond to each other in love. And that's been, honestly, the power that we've seen in our marriage. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.